What's up, everybody? Welcome to a special edition of the Academics Podcast. This is your host, Justin D. Barnett. Now, before we get into this episode, I just want to let you all know that this is the beginning of an all-new season of the show. That's right. Season four of the Academics Podcast is here, and you can now expect new episodes every Monday, so stay tuned. But like I said, this episode is actually a special edition. This is resurfaced audio from a panel discussion that I took part in back in May of 2021 called the In for Equity Black Talent Fireside Chat presented by In for 13 and Sparks and Honey. We talk about a range of topics surrounding DEI and the advertising industry. So please take a listen and enjoy. Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're going to be looking at culture in the vertical, continuing our In for Equity series. As you know, on Tuesday, uh, Sparks and Honey's CEO, Terry Young, had a conversation uh, with some top C-suite level people about this new commitment to making sure that the creative and advertising industry uh, is as inclusive and equitable as society at large. Yesterday, our chief strategy officer, Camilla LaCruz, spoke with some DEI professionals, had a really fascinating conversation about the way in which we can make these changes real. And today, we're going to talk with some uh, employees, some uh, some Black talent who are coming up, doing some really interesting things, get their opinions uh, about where all this needs to go. And so I'm thrilled uh, to introduce our panel for the day. We have Olivia Campbell. She is a brand strategist. We have Mel Matos. She's an, uh, an associate creative director and creative entrepreneur and the founder of the Woe Me app. Uh, we're joined as well by Justin Barnett. He's a strategist uh, and creator and founder of the Academics Podcast. And we're also joined by Sydney Schutz, who is a producer and founder of Bid Black. And of course, I am joined today uh, by my terrific uh, co-briefer uh, for the day, uh, Devery Velasquez. Uh, we're, we're hoping to continue some of the themes that we discussed um, in the past couple days when it comes to equity and inclusion, specifically within our world of advertising and creative. But today we're gonna do something a little bit different. Um, so we're gonna have our typical panel discussion, but we thought we'd bring a little bit more, well, we'll bring, we thought we'd bring some quant and qual to the table. So as we go through today, we're gonna start by looking at some facts and some quotes and some big data, some maybe troubling data as well. Um, and get our guests' uh, perspective on this and hopefully get a conversation going about what these facts and figures mean for young uh, Black talent uh, in our world. So why don't we dive on in? And I'll start here. We'll start big, right? Um, so as you can see here, uh, we know that 66% of Gen Zers say that corporate responses to the Black Lives Matter movement uh, last year and this year, and frankly, the years before that, have informed their desire to engage with these companies, which to me, and I, I, I imagine most of the strategists here looking at this, um, understand that that's pretty important for brands. Uh, this comes from uh, the Morning Consult poll, which interviewed Gen Zers um, to ask their views on social movements as they went across the nation. Now, what's interesting here is that's a pretty extraordinary amount of, of unity uh, when it comes to uh, sort of Gen Zers. The same poll finds that less than 10% of Gen Zers though, have a lot of faith in big business and the media, the institutions that, let's be real, we're discussing today um, to help affect change. So this is something clearly that the that this talent is paying a lot of attention to, especially the younger talent, people uh, just entering the industry. Um, but they don't have a ton of faith in the industry itself. 
um, to, to fix. So Sydney, I'd love to start with you here. Um, I guess my question is, how does the, how does the stance uh, that a company take impact young talent's desire to join? And I don't know, I'm curious if you think the new interview question for potential employees is, is something about you know, where your company stands on uh, systemic racism and injustice. So what, what's your take on, on this data and, and perhaps that new relationship um, between young talent and, uh, and these companies? Um, I think that it's it's a, a work in progress. I don't think everybody's really ready to meet in the middle of what this really means yet, mm-hmm. but it is good that we're being more vocal about it on our end at least. And hopefully, you know, like everything in time, it will kind of equal out or even out, I guess you could say. But um, I think it's important that companies and brands pay attention to this stat because it's only going to grow. It's not going to go down. Um, it's only yeah. going to grow. And I think um, it's important because uh, when, you, you know, when you're aligned with the stance that your your work and your brand and um, the people that you're around, the culture, when you're aligned with all of that, you can be more authentic when you come to work. And for someone like me, I know personally what it feels like to uh, have to show up to work and feel like I have to be a a portion of myself or I have to wear a mask. So the ideal uh, scenario would be one where I could be at work and around people who look like me and who value the same things as me. And I can talk um, about work stuff, but also about things outside of work. And um, there can just be kind of like a holistic alignment there um, because mm-hmm. we do spend so much time at work and we do bring so much of ourselves to work, especially the work that we all do as strategists and producers and creators. That's very personal mm-hmm. and that's very like exhausting to a certain degree because we're we're putting our creativity um, and our, you know, just our expression on the line. So it's important to me that that's being valued um, every step of the way. Yeah, I love the, the, the thinking around time that you've brought in here, um, both that this isn't going away anytime soon, but also that, you know, com- people really invest their time in their jobs, especially with creative ones like ours. Olivia, can I ask you to pick up on that? I'm, I'm curious, do you think these are, you know, we don't, the issue isn't going away, certainly, uh, nor should it. Um, but I guess I'm curious if you think that this is something that's unique to Gen Z. Is it growing perhaps for millennials? Like what does age and time spent in corporate America um, do to sort of some of these commitments? Yeah, as someone who's like on the cusp and desperately clinging to be Gen Z because I like to be on TikTok <laughs> and not old, um, is the fact that I think that millennials, especially because of the 09 depression, really came to the fact that like having to live and work in society is not necessarily a choice. Like you have to work, yeah. you have to make money, you have to labor. And so I think that what happens kind of started happening there was, you know, Gen Z picked up on is that why should I have to come to a place where I have to work to earn money and you also are going to be racist to me, you're also going to be queerphobic, ableist, all these other things. They're starting to be like, if I am making the decision to work here and I can't opt out of that, I'm gonna make the best possible decision for me and not for the company. Yeah, I, I love that as sort of a, affecting change. Um, so let's uh, let's move on to our next provocation here. Devery, would you tell us here about the, the, the beginning process here as we think about perhaps selecting a company that you might want to uh, to work in or how they select you? Yeah, so we pulled this uh, data point from the CEO of, of Bell Doyne Group. I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, uh, the Yeah, Dave Melville, he says, it's on executive recruiters to embrace their role as gatekeepers of opportunity and access 
and evolve in how they source, vet, and recommend candidates from underrepresented minorities. Um, so the summary of this basically speaks to, um, I think my, my interpretation was how companies uh, should have a relationship with investors where they are being entrusted with the decision of bringing in diverse talent and you know being able to um, have the, the opportunity to search for ex uh, expansive diverse talent without limitations. So with DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, this means that not only are they uh, considering, they're, they're considering new ways to seek their next executive, their next leader. Um, so it's, it's a strategic play. It's something that, especially in today's society, there's a lot of sensitivity and there's a lot of, there's a lot to consider just with the changes of the world. So my question, this is open to anyone, um, which tactics when it comes to recruiters, which tactics can recruiters learn to better earn the trust of diverse and or POC BIPOC candidates? Uh, Mel, can I can I bring you in here? Have you uh, had experience with this and, and your thoughts kind of on this first part of the journey when it comes to entering into an organization? Yeah, I think there's a couple of systems that are have quickly become antiquated that recruiters kind of have it on them to move away from. There's like, you know, what was originally probably an efficacy measure of resume scanners and bots um, just to kind of weed out through the applicants. But to beat those bots and not fall in the black hole that a majority of resumes fall into, you need the insight, the skill, you need to know how to prepare your resume to beat those bots. And there are people making careers out of reviewing resumes and building them in a way that will beat the bots. And that's not always affordable or accessible to minorities. So that's the first system. And then it comes to what is actually on that resume and what's being vetted. You know, if you don't come from a traditional college education background, all of the um, all of the, the cultural resonance, all of your experience, your thoughts, your creativity, it's not even mm -hmm. going to be seen because you don't have a degree on your resume. So I think they need to move away from these kind of overly efficient methods of vetting people to bring in more humanity and more, um, more individualized ways to vet and recruit people that go beyond the traditional measures of making sure someone is college educated because as we know minorities aren't always able to afford that education but that doesn't that shouldn't negate the creativity the insights and the the talent that they can bring to a job so i think some of those um, systems need to be rethought and definitely have some more humanity brought in so that minorities can rise to the top yeah, yeah. we're definitely going to get to that but go ahead debbie Oh yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. Um, I wanted, I'm, I'm curious, Justin, you you are, a, you have a position of, of leadership or power, especially with your academics podcast. And I'm curious on your take on how people in, in these positions that, such as yours, um, how can we earn the trust of potential investors or supporters of our projects, of our, of our endeavors, the business endeavors? Uh, to just make di more diverse decisions. It's um, a good question. I think I think what's what's most important is we we have to um, you know show up when when the time is when we're called upon. You know I think that the work comes first, and as as, as long as we lead with the work, um, I think in order to 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 get people to to, to pay attention, um, specifically like recruiters and 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 people and, and the gatekeepers within the industry. Um, 
I feel like it, it's not solely up to them. I think they bear a lot of the brunt for, for the, the problems systematically within this industry. Um, I think a lot of it needs to be um, hiring managers, being educated on what to look for and, and how to, to, to fairly um, vet candidates and, and, and you know, give these opportunities to, to people. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, it's funny, we're going to stick with, um, we're going to stick with our friend, Dave Melville here. Um, there's a lot of interesting provocations uh, from, from this particular article we pulled this from. And I was, um, you know, uh, Debbie pointed this out, but I, I uh, when we were doing our research for this, but, you know, there's an interesting moment where we, you know, we can talk about all this stuff academically, but obviously the pandemic that we've all lived through has changed the way things look, right? Um, and one a comment here that sort of that this <laughs> this, uh, this Dave Belville had was that the pandemic did a good job of revealing leadership talent in our midst. Under crisis, the status quo leadership types dissolved and a new generation of talent became leaders, which is great to hear, right? You can, if you are so lucky to be able to get into an organization and get brought in by those gatekeepers, um, there are moments perhaps like this where you're able to step up uh, and perhaps um, shine brightly. Now, obviously there are systemic issues to this, right? Um, you know, uh, when, the, when the top talent, when the, when the top management at your company does not look like you, suddenly it becomes a lot harder to prove yourself uh, as, a leader, and, and actually what I'm curious about here is this role perhaps of, of intersectionality, right? Um, and uh, um, uh, uh, Mel, let's throw this to you here. Um, I'm curious about this issue of intersectionality, right? It's tough enough to be seen as a leader uh, when you're young. It is even harder, obviously, to be seen as a leader um, when you're a person of color, but when we throw things like gender or the ability spectrum or, or class, as I think was hinted at earlier, into the mix, things suddenly become even, even more difficult. So how do you support leadership uh, in a way that maybe gives everybody the opportunity to feel like a leader? And I don't know, have, have you felt like at the companies that you've worked at that this has become, uh, that this is either a priority or needs to become a priority? Uh, it definitely, I would say it definitely needs to become a priority and we can go mm -hmm. back to the conversation of culture fit, right? If I yeah. am going to work every day and I'm not a part of these water cooler conversations because I'm not, you know, I'm not aware of the cultural, you know, the things that my bosses and everyone around me are into, um, that kind of leaves out this feeling of belonging where I don't even feel like I belong in this environment, let alone yeah. that I'm going to be regarded as a leader. Um, so I think having a lot more of the, the culture fit, um, because, you know, it, it can come down to no one at work watches Insecure except for me and my Black coworker. When Nipsey Hussle died, no one else at work batted an eye when we're having to work mm. through that day like nothing is wrong. So getting more of that humanity and getting more of that culture fit into the workplace so that I can show up authentically to work and I don't have to kind of mold myself into becoming a leader as I've seen them in the workplace because the only leaders that I've seen in the workplace don't look like me, don't have the same cultural um, resonance and, and things that we're into. Um, and being able to show up to work and talk about those things without being marked as timid on my review have a very yeah. big thing, a very big part of feeling like a leader and feeling like I can contribute to the conversations and the work that's happening around me. Mm -hmm. And Olivia, I might ask you to pick up that thread as well. One of the things we talked about on Tuesday 
was that um, we think about leadership and executive training, it almost always goes to leaders and executives, right? Um, that uh, perhaps you, you're not, you know, perhaps you, do, you don't feel like you're part of the culture fit, but you know, there we need to make an effort to, 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 to fix that. And much of that effort only goes sort of to the top. So I'm curious if you would be, if you think you and, and perhaps, um, I don't know, other young black talent would be interested in more of this sort of leadership training or if the system you know just needs to change before that can happen um i i i'm curious about your take on maybe interventions here to to help leaders uh emerge when you know they're often held back yeah so i think it's um i still think that the onus is usually on the leadership here because it's not as if yeah. like young black talent like doesn't know how to kind of do these things as any other talent does it's more so having the opportunities and I think what's really hard about this conversation right now is that in most companies there's a set amount of leadership positions and most times those leadership positions are occupied <laughs> so when you yeah. come up into the conversations of like we want to promote leaders and it's like where to <laughs> there's nowhere to go uh, right be fired you know someone has to go so it kind of becomes the fact that like okay well if there's no room for me I'm going to go so there has to be other ways to make room or make space because if you don't make space they'll find that it is it's not enough space they'll go find it somewhere else and then that's how a lot of companies end up cycling through so much junior black talent especially and junior latin talent junior asian talent they just cycle through it because they don't have room there they go somewhere else yeah I that is incredible incredibly well said yeah I just want to make a quick observation and know I interpreted this quote a little bit slightly different just because okay. I know each of these individuals personally and like outside of work. And I know that our leadership between Justin's podcast, um, Olivia doing a lot of work with Three's a Crowd and In for 13 and leading that as long, along with Mel and her app and my um my foundation bid black all of those things that we have done and we're able to call ourselves leaders of are things that we created outside of work because there wasn't space for us in work so i just want to point out that this quote to me resonates more so on the on how we we lead for us on our own and outside of these structures and i think that's an important point to for uh ceos or recruiters or whomever to to ask themselves like, why is that? Why is it that everything that they do is kind of like outside the structure a little bit? And I think historically black communities have always had to operate, you know, outside the mainstream culture um, and, and yeah. how that being like, uh, you know, like it's the same thing happening right now. It's happening right now. And it's like, we, we praise all these initiatives and, you know, things that are going on. But at the end of the day, when you really look at it, they are happening on the margins of the, the the mainstream system. So I think it's really interesting that this quote, uh, I it more so as a marginalized person rather than inside a company, because to me, the importance is what I've done on the margins rather than how people have seen it on the inside of the systems as secondary. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a fabulous point. Um, so one thing that we did want to address while we were here is that, you know, institutions have, uh, have structures to perhaps, uh, combat some of these systemic, uh, issues within their midst, but they don't always work. So Debra, tell us about, um, this, uh, this data point here. Yeah, um, I completely agree with you, Sydney. And I just, that it definitely, I, I, now that I, I'm viewing that quote in a different frame of mind, I mean, it's a hundred percent true from, I think. We, you know, we um, don't all often see ourselves represented within an organization. And so historically we've had to be innovative and 
you know, and that's where our creativity taps in outside of the workplace. But on, on, in today's society, I think it's, um, it's interesting because we can also use that to leverage ourselves to gain leadership within these larger organizations because they see how innovative and creative we are outside of the workplace. And they, they ultimately want to capitalize on it, right? So it's kind of um, one of those win-win situations, I guess. Um, so for this HR point, 49% uh, of Black HR professionals reported observing racial discrimination at work compared with 13% of white HR professionals. Um, this was from De Derek Avery, who did research for University of Houston. He's a, a professor. Um, so basically, you know, HR departments, they're designed to support and be advocates for staff, but that's not always the case. Um, and I'm sure we all have personal experiences with that. I know I definitely do. Um, not here, thankfully. <laughs> it's such a breath of fresh air at Swartz and Honey. Um, as the data shows though, HR pros don't see the world in the same way that, that the regular staff does. So my question to Olivia, I wanna ask, how do you think colleagues, specifically non-POC colleagues can be better allies when microaggressions or bias is present in, in this you know, decision-making rooms? Yeah, so I think that oftentimes what happens is that, this happens to me actually often enough, this is a microaggression happens all the time, is that it makes it hard to get past a microaggression when you call it out because now it becomes the whole performance of they now feel like they have wronged you. And so now they got to send you an email or a text telling you how they didn't mean that and how they have wronged you. And you have like kind of moved past the feeling of that interaction because it's kind of like you've called it out and it's done. I think that sometimes we focus on the ego around the interaction rather than focusing on actually fixing where it came from. And that slows mm -hmm. things down, makes it really inefficient and ends up frustrating people because I'm not going to go to HR over every little thing. Like just we're people, people to people. And I also don't need other people making a big show out of it either. Let's just talk about it as adults, move on, keep it pushing. Right. Totally agree with that. I mean, and like you said, the performative aspect, it, a lot of times, you know, I've, in, in past organizations, my frustration was that once I bring up the microaggression and I'm trying to speak about it logically or intellectually to inform the person, it now becomes a show where I have to coddle their feelings, especially if they were a white colleague, I have to now coddle their white tears. And that's not fair for me to Sydney's point. It's exhausting and it's draining, especially for the line of work that we're in, right? Um, we're already pouring out so much of our heart and, and expression. So Cindy, I wanna ask you, what would you like to see from HR departments when it comes to combating or preventing bias? Uh, well, first of all, I wanna give props to you, Devery and Olivia for like having those conversations at work about microaggressions. I don't do that because I don't know how to have these conversations in a nice way. Uh, so I just don't. Um, so in terms of HR, I think that knowing where I come from, it's, a, it's, it's the only way to really solve it is to just kind of like even things out and make, um, make the environment and the culture in the office, like truly representative and normalized of like how I am in the world. Like, for instance, like, uh, if I felt like I had more people around me that I could, um, 
I don't know. I just I just feel like this is not a good question for me because I don't have these conversations. But I do feel like the answer truly does lie in just is in just making me feel more supported by having more people around me that that yeah. look like me and understand where I'm coming from, so that I don't feel so ostracized when moments like this happen. I feel outnumbered potentially is why I don't have these conversations is because there are people around me who um, I feel like just won't get it or it's just going to go in the wrong direction. And I already been dealing with a lot. So it's just not, I don't want to put more on my plate in terms of having these conversations. So if there was more, um, I think awareness for these types of situations could be raised if the culture truly shifted. And the only yeah. way to me culture is truly going to shift within an organization is, is if the people, um, it gets a little shake, shaken up. So. Can I ask just to, to push a little bit on that? First of all, thank you guys for sharing. I mean, this is this is exactly what I think we need to hear. Does that mean that you think that this is maybe a question further um, further up the pipeline, that the best way to avoid microaggressions and these issues is just to really start by making sure that the talent you bring in is yeah. diverse and inclusive uh, instead of trying to build out some HR structure at the end of the pipeline to fix this yeah, problem? It don't make sense to me to try to do this on the ground level. And and to um, Devry said something earlier about how like all of us we do things outside of work to kind of push ourselves up, and how mm -hmm. that becomes a positive thing inside the workspace. But really, like it creates this unreasonable expectation of how Black folks are supposed to perform to even be recognized. And I think that's also an issue here. Is like we all have to be excellent in order to like even be seen so it creates an unrealistic expectation for how we can even like get in the door if we're not doing all these things like what if we just went to school and we got our degree and we did what we're supposed to do and we can handle you know our business and grow with that like who's going to just see that raw potential why do i have to yeah. do all these other things in order to be looked at and valued um so i think it's definitely a top down issue versus like a a, a down up and if and if it, I do feel like it is a it's unlevel on the bottom layer then I'm just going to mm -hmm. keep my head and do my work and not even really like put too much emphasis on the culture of the place because it's just not my job to do that yeah and, and good luck uh to the people who want to keep you around and fix their retention issues when that happens that's an excellent transition though to something that we brought up a little bit earlier um about college degrees um so if you'll indulge me here for a second. Uh, Byron August, um, CEO of Opportunity. Uh, I guess he said we were a former uh, member of Obama's National Economic Council said that basically said recently that four year degrees turn college from a bridge to opportunity to a drawbridge that gets pulled up if someone hasn't gotten through. Um, obviously, media and, and uh, this is technically about the tech industry, but the media and tech industries have historically uh, favored uh, an employee pool that is that has really similar educational backgrounds and societal advantages. But now some companies we have found are actually dropping the college degree requirement um, in an effort to basically onboard more diverse talents. And I think we mean diverse in, in, the, in the most specific and the broadest sense there as well. This is, of course, especially important in the advertising world, right? We've talked about the fact that, uh, you know, create, being a creative is a very different job. Creativity uh, is the kind of thing you can educate, but it's also the kind of thing that's innate and isn't necessarily tied to where you got your BA or master's or whatever from. Um, this is, of course, an equity issue too. African-American talent is less likely to have degrees overall. They're less like they're and they're they're more likely to kind of uh, to graduate from the kinds of colleges and, and programs that don't necessarily feed sort of top 
agencies. And of course, there are lots of Black people who work in creative who have fabulous degrees. Uh, some of those people even are on our, our panel today, but there are still systemic issues. So Justin, can I bring you in here? As long as we're thinking a little bit about disruption, um, I'm curious your, your take on this and if um, moving away perhaps from the four-year degree um, you know, standard that we've always had is gonna help increase not just diversity within organizations, but maybe even like happiness and productivity too? I mean, in the perfect world, I would love to say, yeah, that's gonna help. But the reality is this, this conversation, this topic has been going on for years. You know, mm -hmm. when I tried to get into the industry, I didn't have a college degree and that was my barrier two years ago, right? So, you know, I, I interviewed at a ton of places, couldn't get an opportunity. That was the biggest barriers. I didn't have the degree at the same time when people were saying they dropped the degree requirement, right? So statements mm. like this and pledges like this by companies to say that they're gonna, you know, go down to these standards, they only mean something if they're applied, right? And I think this type of conversation is a lot of fluff. Um, so as much as I, I would love to see this happen and people to, to look at candidates fairly based on their skill sets and, and you know, how they can actually do a job as, a, as, as opposed to the colleagues they went to or the degree they, they got or, you know, the creative school they went to. Um, it sounds good, but like, it's time to see some action. Like within the last year, yeah. I've been at three, I've been at, um, I'm now on my, my third agency, all huge agencies. Um, and every week we see new hires show up on the screen in our meetings, right? I've never seen a new hire come that was from high school or that didn't have a college degree. You know, so it sounds good. Um, I would love to see organizations and, and companies actually apply this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mel, I'm curious your take on, on this. Um, obviously, there's a lot of room to go. I mean, does it feel like a worthwhile uh, commitment? And, and I, I don't know, if someone was asking your take on how to operationalize this, how might you suggest people begin to rethink what college means when you're, um, you know, applying for a job or hiring someone? Yeah, I definitely, I'm, I'm one of those people that like college is a scam after I went and got my degree um, because there were two of those four years I spent not in my concentration. I was learning geology and whatever humanities were deemed re uh, required for my art degree. Um, so I think the whole education system kind of needs to shift to uh, more of what I guess the older school um, educators were called like trade schools, um, teaching mm -hmm. the hard skills or the soft skills that need to get you in the door, like um, networking, people skills, your actual craft that you wanna pursue um, versus all of these other, you know, classes and, and curriculum that have nothing to do with my decisions of what I wanna pursue, but have been deemed required to get me even in the door um, and then get me into 20 years of debt, trying to pay that off when this degree kind of means really nothing if you don't know the right people, if you're not in the right place at the right time, because we're already yeah. at the bottom of that talent pool. So I think the entire education system needs a, a, a redo. Um, to be more of um, a mentorship and apprenticeship model to get these people in the doors and the experience that all these companies say they want that college mm -hmm. students are not able to get because they're busy getting a college degree. So I think we need to start from the beginning. Uh, I'm curious if anybody wants to stand up for these requirements um, or just throw in a, a, a thought there because well, now I just want to know. <laughs> Um, I'm a li let me say I'm a liberal arts girl. I went to liberal arts. Yeah. College. <laughs> so I think that me too. I, liberal arts. No, heck yeah. Come on, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, I oh, I checked. Don't, don't think I didn't check. Yeah. <laughs> 
what I think Mel is really getting at though is that humanities in a lot of places, especially like non-liberal arts colleges and universities, they don't put any importance on why they take them. They are always seen as barriers to what you would like to do rather than mm -hmm. college and university as a framework is supposed to kind of teach you how to be a better like citizen, a better person who is like helping in society. Because um, I think that kind of what Justin was talking about is that really what happens in advertising, which has changed how we view about college and all these other industries is that we view college as preparing us for the workforce rather than like kind yeah. of preparing us to kind of be better citizens. And because of that, there's this assumption that if you did not go to college, I cannot trust that you will be a good laborer for me because I don't think that you did the proper things that every worker should do to get to where you need to get, which is just completely ridiculous because again, we all say that college is for expanding your mind and opening up your horizons, but also like you need to learn how to do an eight, a nine to five and Excel and all these other things that are not tied to a college experience, but are expected with that. Yeah, um, go ahead. No, no, that, that's exactly what, what I was what I was trying to get at is, you know, I can only speak from from, you know, my experiences and my point of view and what I had to go through to get into the industry. But, you know, prior to getting into the industry, I had, you know, I had launched um, a successful clothing and lifestyle brand that I ran for a, a certain amount of like a, you know, a few years. And, you know, I, I gained these entrepreneurial tools and, and how to strategically think about things. I had a successful music career. Like I had this, I'm now in my, my third change of career and I had developed all these skill sets. But when I came into advertising and wanted to get into the marketing field, you know, they forced me to start as an intern. You know, I was, which, which was very unfair. And it just felt like, you know, it makes you feel a little bit like, uh, you know, unwanted, the, the, the imposter syndrome, because it's like, I've, I've accomplished so many things. I've done so many things. I've proven myself and that's still not good enough. You know, and the, those barriers are a lot of people who, you know, come from the background that I come from and want to go into the corporate life, those barriers are, are discouraging. And most people, yeah. you know, drop out. They, they get out and go back to, to being an entrepreneur or doing their own thing because it's the, the microaggressions of, of, you know, hiring managers and recruiters who are who you're dealing with, not knowing what to do with you and, and you know, placing you at levels that you feel are lower than, than your worth, you know? So, yeah, yeah I mean, I love you. Yeah, I, I think that's very well said. And obviously, just as someone who just went through a little bit of a hiring process, I'd way rather talk to somebody about the clothing brand they start or the music work they're doing than the classes they took like 10 years ago at some liberal arts college as great as my French national cinema class was. Um, let's move to something a little more positive maybe here, something that I thought was fairly interesting for my friends at Shondaland. Debbie, tell us about friendship. Yeah, uh, right now, well, always but right now we're, we're shining a light on work friends and how they can be a critical resource um, a 2018 study found that work friendships are really important people who are having a best friend at work are seven times more likely to feel um, engaged in their in their work and especially with us as strategists creatives you know that's super important to feel comfortable to feel wanted to have something or someone to look forward to when we're you know, entering the workspace so that we can let our guard down and, and really, you know, do a good job at what whatever it is we're doing. Um, so, yeah, the, my my question, uh, this would be for Melissa. I'm, I'm curious, how do you think uh, a thriving environment with healthy work uh, friendships help welcome new, young and diverse talent into the workplace? 
Uh, I think it's it's kind of twofold um, because if you're if you're welcoming in talent that is the vast minority and doesn't see anyone that looks like them, expecting them to make friends with everyone around them is is kind of a, a double edged sword um, because they don't have the same values, the same um, cultural interests. So expecting people that are the minority to come in and make friends with everyone is is kind of the the, the negative side of that, but flipping that and, and making this environment of belonging and seeing yourself in more people. Um, and not to say that minorities can only be friends with minorities, but it is uh, an issue that I don't want it to be on the minority to make friends with everyone in the office when they don't identify with anyone in the office. Um, so again, having a more diverse employee group can help to bring that about and bring those friendships about naturally. Um, but I think looking at, you know, looking at your minority um, employees and expecting them to, to instantly make friends with, you know, this environment that includes microaggressions and lack of feeling of belonging. Um, I don't think it should be on us to kind of make friends and make something out of the pile that we're given. So, yeah. Or this whole point reminds me of, I, I wonder if this is a little ableist also, if it doesn't consider people who are maybe like socially awkward or on some sort of spectrum or introverted. And I, that was just a random thought. I didn't plan for it to think about that, but um, yeah, you bring up a good point. Um, my question to Olivia, um, what does, like how does addressing, you know, uh, a works uh, or embracing a workspace, what does that look like for people who are in leadership positions? Do you think it's a top down issue? Do you think that um, people, you know, the execs and the C-suite uh, people in, in the organizations, do they have a responsibility to kind of provide this embrace, embracing, you know, working environment for creatives and people of color? Or do you think it's from the ground up? Oh, that's a good question. I think that it's, it's both. I think from the top, and this is, um, I don't know if a lot of leaders will be open to this, but you have to foster a culture of opposition to your leadership. And what that means is that people on the ground have to feel like, because uh, I think that sometimes there's way too much emphasis on being friends with people at work. You don't necessarily have to be friends, but you should feel that you can be in community with them. You should feel that you can talk to them about salary, about what's going on with a project, mm -hmm. about what's this stuff, so that you can all kind of work towards your collective interest. And so if people feel like they can challenge people at the leadership level, then people on the ground are going to feel safer making community so that, you know, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure everybody else has felt this before, where you're in a group and you have to be the one person being like, I don't know if that's right, bruh. And like, you just have to like wait for the backlash. And that's never a good mm -hmm. feeling. And there's gonna, of course, be neurodivergent people who are gonna be like, I already feel stigmatized. I'm just not gonna say anything about this anyway. So yeah, on fostering mm -hmm. community over friendships and friends will come. I made friends with Sid at work, so yeah. <laughs> Um, Justin, can I ask you real quick? Um, these are these are all these are all incredibly well taken points. But you know, so you're one of our creatives on here. Um, I'm curious about this relationship between like feeling. I mean, you know, moving beyond just the, the work friends idea, feeling comfortable at work and the ability to do great creative thinking. I mean, do you think do you think the two are tied? And I don't know. Do you think <laughs> top brass uh, get that, especially for young people who like might be spending twelve hours a day at this kind of stuff and where you do, you know, the people around you really are your community 50, 60 hours a week. 
yeah, I mean, being comfortable and, and creative are, they go hand in hand, you know, I, and I still struggle with this now. Like I, I'm, I'm going to speak on it, but you know, I don't, this is not, I don't have the answers because I'm still in the midst of trying to figure out how to communicate and, and get people to understand my perspective and my insights that, that I bring to the table based on a lot of times a culture that people are not familiar with. Right. So the difficult part comes with not only do I have to get a good idea across, but I also have to educate my team and the people who I work closest with on exactly what I'm talking about. So that's one barrier. And then once they're on board, they then have to, we, we now have to educate the, the client, you know? So being able to, to feel comfortable and, and have like, you know, friends in the workspace, I, you know, I, I say that word lightly with friends because like Olivia, like I'm not too focused on having friends. I'm more so a doer and a worker and I'm focused on let's get this job done. You know, like let, let's get it done the way it's supposed to be done. So as long as we have open communication and, and some type of positive rapport and people know that I'm, 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 I'm trying to bring the best work forward. That, that's, that's what my, my, my main focus is. And there, there's a struggle with, you know, initially in my career, I was very uncomfortable. I was just uncomfortable being, um, you know, the only black person in the room, the lowest level person uh, in the room. Um, and, and just, you know, within the last year dealing with things outside of work, societal issues and, and you know, yeah bringing all those things to the table, it's very uncomfortable. And I think, you know, a lot of times it, it can affect the work and it, it hinders the way, you know, you show up and the way you perform. So yeah, to answer your question, the two go, they go hand in hand. You have to be comfortable um, in order to, to, to get the best work done, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, someone said earlier, you have to feel authentic when you show up to work and, and, and creativity and authenticity. I mean, you know, they're, they're just in, in, they're inextricably tied. Um, let's jump into our last provocation here. So this comes from Will McNeil, who's the co-founder and CEO of Black Tech Jobs. Um, and he said, and again, this was about the, the, the tech industry, but I think it applies to ours as well. As soon as you decide employees can work from anywhere, uh, you can win the diversity battle. Uh, you can go where the black talent is. So this quote um, sort of uh, comes, I think, as we're at a bit of a moment of transition right now. Everybody's been doing the work from home thing for the past, you know, 15 months, but uh, the world's changing out there a little bit. People, I'm hearing more and more people getting summoned back into the office. Um, and I guess I'm curious about what you think this means, this potential work for world for a work, world of, of, of hybrid work uh, may end up for talent, especially uh, young um, black talent, you know, uh, remote work can for you to sort of do what you want, live where you want to live, find the community perhaps that you're interested in. But at the same time, it can feel isolating, can feel draining. I mean, I'm sure everyone here knows that a bad day in your apartment can often feel worse than a bad day in, in the office. So, um, Sydney, I might bring you in here. What lasting impact do you think um, the remote uh, work experience will have uh, on workers of color? And, and I'm also just curious if you think that there's gonna be something particularly unique for, for, for this group of, of people um, that's gonna feel a little bit outside, maybe something for HR people to consider uh, that may be different than say remote work for, I don't know, uh, non-workers uh, of color. That's a good question. Um, interestingly enough, I actually work at a financial technology company and I am fully remote now. And I mm -hmm. did get the job during the pandemic, so. I feel like I fit into this category. Sure, the new model, yeah, disruptor. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'm still getting used to it, um, but I think it's a great thing. There's lots of innovation and creativity that can 
be created with this model in terms of creating programs, internships, opportunities, whatever specifically for groups of people. Um, like in order to be in technology or at tech, you don't have to be in San Francisco now. And that's, um, that's a great thing because we know that tech is probably one of the worst <laughs> um, industries right. if, if you're looking for diversity. Um, so I think that there's a little bit more, I think that, uh, I think that we're still like, even though we're in the new model, we're not really in it because like things haven't innovated in terms of recruiting. Like um, mm -hmm. I don't think innovated to align with what this really means. Um, but I do think that the impact for folks um, of color, it, we are living in a completely digital world at this point, education, work, um, socialization, everything is uh, digital. And I mean, it's been like that, but we're kind of able to lean into it a little bit more. So even for like if I was a recruiter in this new age or whatever you want to call it, I would sure. be going, I mean, you know, if I didn't already have the network of BIPOC talent that I was knew was important to find, I would go as far as to just like stalk different people's LinkedIn. Like, you know, when you're on Spotify or Apple music and you're like, Oh, this is a dope song. I'm gonna go to this song radio and look at other songs that are similar mm -hmm. to this. basically the same thing. It's like, Oh, I'm, this is a dope person. I wish, let me go through their connections and see who they know. I think there's just like a lot of like work that can be done digitally mm -hmm. since now everything is open, there's less limitations and um, yeah, I don't know. No, I appreciate it. Listen, I love the, that sort of disruptive thinking. Mel, I might ask you to give us uh, the final thought for today. I don't know if they're bringing you back into the office or when you're gonna go back in, but um, I don't know, it's been a crazy year, I think, for for everybody, but especially for, you know, uh, for, for Black and BIPOC uh, talent. I mean, are you anticipating that when you are summoned back into the office, if you are summoned back to the office, things are going to feel a little bit different? And um, what do you imagine that difference might be like? Uh, I, I haven't spent much time imagining that because I know that I'm just not going back to the office. Um, oh, okay. there, are, there are systems in place now that, you know, it's almost like why, I look at this quote and I'm like, why weren't you going to where the black talent was to begin with? Um, and I feel like now there's more resources, like a lot more directories have come up like Bit Black, where you know there's now no excuse to, to not go where the black talent is. Um, and when it comes back to going in the office, it's, it's still not gonna be where the black talent is for the most part, um, unless there was a lot of hiring done, you know, unless these companies were walking the walk in their talk, but I would rather stay where I am comfortable, um, especially when it comes to my work environment. And I don't know, I just don't see a reason other than to micromanage or, you know, if you have these systems in place for a digital office in a digital world, um, I think we all, you know, we all learned or at least were a little bit surprised that, you know, people can actually do their work without being micromanaged and having to be tied to a desk. And I personally will not um, not take that decision lightly if we are called back into the office. Um, okay. Yeah, so that's, that's just where I stand. I don't know if that's a good final thought or not. Probably not, but I just, I haven't been given it much thought um, because I feel like there's no real reason to have to go back into the office, especially if none of this change was um, being made in a visible way. 
So maybe the takeaway is if you want your employees to start imagining what it's like to come back into the office, think about the changes that need to happen uh, for them to make that feel aspirational. Um, that's gonna wrap us up for the day. Thank you so, so much to Olivia, Mel, Justin, uh, Sydney, and uh, of course my co-briefer, Devry. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys for joining uh, our series uh, all this week. You know, just really fascinating conversations that really needed to be had. And I, I know I learned a lot and came away inspired from our conversation today, but even the ones uh, earlier this week. Um, you can tune into Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on our LinkedIn page at noon New York time. While you're there, jump in the comment section, let us know what you're thinking, feeling and seeing perhaps your ideas to disrupt uh, going forward. So until next time, consider yourselves briefed. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning into this episode. If you want to keep up with us outside of these podcasts, make sure you follow us on Instagram. That's at Academics, A-D-C-A-D-E-M-I-C-S. You can also email academicspodcast at gmail.com for any and all inquiries. Thank you. Class dismissed.